0: Well, one of my, my favorite little scenes in the Gospels is an interaction between Jesus and a leper. And it's one of those scenes that every time I read it, it just grabs a hold of my heart. Now, in, that, in this scene, um, it's recorded for us in the first chapter of Mark's Gospel. But we witness there a man in his misery. And you don't have to, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, let me just read it for you. But, but Mark, in, in his Gospel, chapter 1, he tells us, And a leper, he says came to Jesus, this man in his misery comes to Jesus. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him or begging him and kneeling before him, he said to him, he said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now now this man, here's the thing, this man who is on his knees begging Jesus is a man who every day of his life was experiencing misery. He was experiencing misery because he was a leper. And because of his leprosy, his own body was turning against him. Uh, that disease with which he was afflicted, it attacked his nervous system. It removed his sense of feeling, his sense of touch. Uh, it would have made his skin look like he was dying. And eventually would have had him even losing parts of his body, like his fingers, maybe his ears, possibly his, his nose. But here's the thing. Not only was that man's own body betraying him, But because he had leprosy, he was expected to endure suffering all of that alone, all by himself. You see, in that culture, he was viewed as one who was unclean. So he would have been an outcast. He would have been an outcast both socially and financially. Uh, Nobody wanted to hire a leper to work for them. So here's this man who is in the midst of this great misery, and he's bearing all that misery all alone. But then Mark tells us this. Listen. He says, and I love this. This gets me every time. This this leper comes to Jesus. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And then we are told this. Moved with compassion. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Touched him. Now, sometimes we just want to read right over that. But he touched this man. And how long had it been since that man who had that leprosy had been touched? Again, leprosy was viewed as being unclean. So as long as that man had had leprosy, guess what? Nobody was touching him. So he might have been years, even maybe decades without any physical human contact. But now in that moment, moved with compassion, Jesus reaches out his hand and he, he touches him. Again, Mark tells us, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him and he said, I am willing, to Be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. He was made clean. And I, and I love that beautiful little scene, because in it there, we witness the compassion of Jesus. We, we see Jesus' heart. We see his heart move for this one who was hurting, move for this one who was suffering and needy. And so from that compassion, Jesus acts, and he, he comforts this man in his misery. He touches him. And then he heals him, and he transforms his life. Moved with compassion, Jesus cares for those who are suffering. And beloved, in his grace, he continues to do the same for us, right? He continues to do the same for us. I mean, doesn't that story of Jesus and the leper remind you of our own story? Of, of your own story? I mean, just like the leper, Jesus too meets us in our misery. And here's the thing <clears throat> our misery, it runs far deeper than that of the leper, right? It runs far deeper than that of the leper. His affliction was one of the body, ours is one of the soul. We are actually afflicted with the leprosy of of sin. And, and that disease, it has turned our very self, our, our mind, our desires, our passions against us. It, it has us dead and unfeeling. Towards the wonderful, beautiful, holy things of God. And too has rendered us unclean, separating us, causing isolation in our life. You see, we are just as desperate as that leper was when he came to Jesus. We too find ourselves in a grave situation, and Jesus is our only hope. But, praise his name, praise his name. He is also moved with compassion towards us. Jesus is our comforter as well. And he comes to us and he touches us with his grace and he he transforms our life. He he removes our sin, he removes our separation, and he restores us to to joy in our life with God and with one another. See why I say I just love that little story of Jesus and the leper. It's such a powerful, powerful story. But I also find it a convicting story. I find it a convicting story, and I say that because that little story, uh, it gets me thinking, it challenges me in regards to my own compassion towards those who are in need. I mean, in that story, Jesus shows great compassion, but I read that story and I think, but what about me? What kind of compassion do I show? Let me ask the question, what kind of compassion do you show. When you see others who are in need, who are struggling, who are suffering, how do you respond? Are we, are we moved with compassion? Are we, we, do we have a heart that longs to help them? Or does our response sometimes look a little different than that of Jesus? I think sometimes when we see the pain and the suffering of others, Sometimes it can feel overwhelming, right? Sometimes it can feel overwhelming. Sometimes, let's be honest, it's easier to just look away than to look for ways to help. Or sometimes it can feel like other people's misery. Uh, well, it comes along and it gets in the way of what we're actually trying to accomplish in our life. So, so we view it more as a, an inconvenience. I know this person's struggling. I know not need to help them, but we view it more as an inconvenience, Than an opportunity to show compassion. Or maybe for you, when you when you see the struggling of others, you're concerned for them, but then you find yourself asking yourself this question but what can I actually do? What can I actually do to help them? I mean, at times, let's be honest, other people's problems they can feel so massive, so huge, We, we can see no real way that we can be used to help them. I mean, we know Jesus can probably fix their problems. But we see ourselves as just inept and insufficient. So in those moments, we can find ourselves tempted to simply back away. Simply shut our eyes to the situation. Because we don't have any idea what we could actually do to help. And so I say all of that to say that when I read this scene of Jesus and the leper, it both moves my heart and it also convicts my heart. It has me asking this question. In this world of misery, am I a person of compassion like Jesus? In this world of misery, am I a person of compassion like my Lord? Are we, the people of Jesus, truly people of compassion? People of compassion. And that's really an important question to keep in the forefront of our minds as we move into our text for this morning. And I say that because in our text for this morning, it's going to confront us and it's going to challenge us. With both our need for and our possible lack of compassion. So are we, the people of Jesus, truly people of compassion? That's the question I want in the forefront of our minds as we go to our text for this morning. So now with that question raised, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to our text for this morning. Turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes in chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And this morning, we get to enter into a new chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. We made it to chapter four. Woohoo! <laughs> now, if you remember, way back in chapter one, uh, which we studied this last fall, we met Koaleth, who is the main spokesman of this book, and he has been preaching to us ever since we met him. And he's told us uh, about the vanity of this world; that it's all, uh, to use his Hebrew term, it's all hevel. He's told us that it's all, it's all like smoke. All of those things that we chase, the money, the knowledge, the power, the pleasure, it all ends up being like smoke. It's tough to catch, it's tough to hold on to, and tough to understand when it's coming or going. So this Koalith, this preacher, he introduced us to that idea in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, uh, he immersed us in this idea. He actually shared with us his own story of smoke chasing. He, he brought us into his autobiography, telling us all about his own pursuits, his intense pursuits of of pleasure and wealth and influence and power. And he told us that he had it all. Um, Every every fantasy, every desire, every longing we might secretly entertain, he had it all to the full. And, And he wasn't exaggerating when he told us that. Remember, this Coleth is none other than the great King Solomon himself. And Solomon was truly a man who had it all. He had everything. But then there in chapter 2, this preacher king shared with us the emptiness that he found in having it all. After all of that chasing, all of that acquiring, this man who had everything, he told us that in the end he actually had nothing. It was just like a handful of smoke. So then he confessed that he found himself actually hating life itself actually hating life itself. But thankfully, things took uh, a bit of a positive turn there in chapter 2 as well. You see, right after telling us that he, he found himself hating life, this preacher then dropped on us a key truth, um, a truth that he continues to unpack throughout this entire book. And, and that truth is that although this world, all the things we chase in this world is not a source of gain. All of our seeking after stuff in this world that will leave us frustrated and empty. That doesn't mean life in this world is without purpose. It doesn't mean it's pointless. What he goes on to tell us is actually life in this world is a gift. It's a gift. But to truly enjoy this gift, we need to understand that this gift is to be enjoyed in fellowship with our creator. This gift is to be enjoyed in fellowship with our creator, God. And so this preacher reminds us in chapter 2. He tells us, for apart from him, apart from God, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? Apart from him. You're not going to have any enjoyment. You're not going to enjoy life. You see, our life in this world is a gift. It's not a source of gain. And it's a gift to be enjoyed in fellowship with our God. That was the that was climax of chapter 2. And then we came to chapter 3. As we came to chapter 3, this preacher, this king solomon he took up the topic of time and, and he walked us through how our our life how time in our life works uh, under the sun and he shows us that time comes along and it exposes all of our smoke chasing it frustrates us but this frustration is actually part of god's good design for us and god's good design is to humble us you see god wants to humble us in order to bring us back to that place of living in joyful dependence and joyful trust in him so God uses the tool of time to humble us and bring us back to that place of dependence upon him. However, here's the thing. As we walk through all of that, all of the teaching of those truths in those chapters, as we went through all that, this preacher, he has dragged us along through a lot of ugliness, a lot of misery. He has talked a lot about Hatred and frustration. He's shown us mourning and weeping and injustice. He's talked over and over again about death. So, so far, walking through this book hasn't been a walk down a, a rosy, cheery, easy, happy path. However, now that we come to chapter 4, guess what? Now that we come to chapter 4, guess what? Nothing's changing. Nothing's changing, it's just going to be more of the same Uh, Even though we now enter into a new chapter Ecclesiastes is just going to keep on being Ecclesiastes The tone that we have encountered thus far Is just going to keep on rolling And we witness this right in the opening of chapter 4 Look at the first three verses here First three verses, this koala tells us Again I saw, what does he say? All the oppressions. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressor, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now again, those aren't very rosy, pleasant sounding words, are they? Um, That doesn't feel like the most encouraging text this morning. Oh, Ryan, I'm so glad I came today to hear these encouraging words. But I took the time this morning to remind you of what we'd already seen in this book so that you remember that there is a point, there is a purpose. And what this preacher is telling us. And his purpose isn't just to bum us out, okay? Maybe on first glance it feels like that, but his purpose isn't just to bum us out. He is actually writing this for our good. This book is for our edification. This book is for our wisdom. And brothers and sisters, this book is ultimately for our joy. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that, but it is for our joy. Again, the words here, they don't start off sounding very joyful. (laughs) Again, he begins here in verse 1 using a phrase that he's used a lot in this book, especially in this immediate context, and that phrase is, I saw. He says, again, verse one, again, I saw. And what this preacher is doing, he's, he's giving us an eyewitness account of life, as he calls it, under the sun, life under the sun. And when he uses that little phrase, under the sun, that's his description of life in this, this fallen, after-Eden, post-Genesis 3 world. And he's already told us of things that he's seen. He told us back in chapter 3, he said, I saw in the place of justice. Remember this? I saw in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In a place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. He's talking about life under the sun. There's sin everywhere. But now here he points our attention to all of the, the oppression that he sees. And when he uses this word oppression, I want you to understand this. He is referencing a very important Old Testament theme. You see, often in the Old Testament there is talk about the Oppressed. And you find it in the Old Testament law, you find it in the writings of the prophets, and you find it in the Old Testament wisdom literature. It's here in Ecclesiastes, but you also find both Job and Proverbs talking about the oppressed. Now when the Bible talks about this idea of oppression or the oppressed, it's describing those who are being unjustly taken advantage of. Those who are being unjustly taken advantage of. It's describing those who who are suffering under the thumb of those who are in power. They are being exploited by those who are in power. They're being used. They're being abused, sometimes even suffering violence and bloodshed at the hands of those who have power. So, this word is a word used to describe suffering through exploitation. Suffering through exploitation. And what this coalesce says is he sees all of the oppression, all of the oppressions done under the sun. Now when he says all, please don't misunderstand that statement. This preacher Solomon is just a human being. He is not omniscient or omnipresent. So he can't be in every place witnessing every act of oppression. Instead, what he is describing here by his use of all is he sees all kinds of oppression. He's witnessing the varying, the, the disturbing, the heartbreaking ways that people oppress one another. And he's not just seeing one example of it, one instance of it. Instead, he's witnessing the, the multitude of ways that one person oppresses another. And he's taking it all in. And he's being overwhelmed by it. And he actually goes on here to tell us that he witnessed a, a truly heartbreaking sight. Look again at verse one. This preacher tells us, and behold, and that word there, behold, it means look. Look at this. And behold. The tears of the oppressed. And they had, what does it say? They had no one. They had no one to comfort them. The tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. As you read that, let me ask you this question. How do you respond to tears? How do you respond to tears? How do you respond when you see someone else cry? When someone else is hurting, when someone is grieving, when they're weeping, what does that do to you? Well, I think for many of us, uh, that, that physical sign of a person's emotional state, those tears, it often causes emotion and compassion to rise up in us, right? There, there is often sympathy, even, even empathy created in us through the tears of another person. And that's, that's because tears are like shooting up an emotional flare, right? It is this visible call, my tears, for help, for, for comfort. I need compassion. But what response does this preacher see here? What response does he see? He tells us twice. He saw no one. No one to comfort. He says on the side of the oppressor there was power. But on the side of the oppressed there was no one. They comfort them. So, so, picture this the flares go up, right? But the oppressed are left all alone. They are all alone in their misery. So, now let me ask you thinking about that picture, how does that sit with you? How does that sit with you? There they are, all alone. Let me ask you this question Have you ever felt that way yourself? Have you ever felt that way yourself? Have you ever felt like, man, I am neck deep in suffering. I'm, I'm in a place of tears. I'm shooting up those physical flares because something in my life is just crushing me. And I'm looking around for help. But I'm finding zero. No one. Ever been in that place where you just, you're in your misery and you're just all alone? You're looking for help, but you just feel all alone. Let me ask you to you this way. You ever witnessed another person in that situation? You ever seen another person in that situation? You ever known someone in who's suffering in an abusive relationship, but they've kept it quiet. They kept it quiet for years, so they're just suffering alone. Or ever watched as someone's career, their livelihood, were were being ruined by someone else because of that person's greed and that person's jealousy, and and there was nothing that suffering person could do. They're just all alone. They just have to take it. Have you ever witnessed people struggling in intense poverty? I remember the first time I drove from San Diego into Tijuana. And I was shocked when I saw the the young Mexican children in their abject poverty. All because all they'd done is simply be born on the wrong side of the border. But when you see that kind of suffering, and people seem all alone in that, let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. What does that do to you? What does that do to you? Does it tug at those heartstrings? Does it maybe bring up tears in you as well? Does it move you with compassion? Or does it just seem overwhelming and Maybe you want to run away from the situation because it just seems too painful. I'm just going to close my eyes to that. Well, look here again at verses 2 and 3 at this preacher's feelings about what he sees. Look at his feelings, his response to what he sees. He tells us that, that because of what he sees, he actually has them lamenting life itself. He says, verse 2, And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both. As he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. You see, he is devastated by what he witnesses. He looks, he sees all of this oppression. All these tears, no one to comfort them, And he just wants to shut his eyes to all of it. Now, I want you to understand this. His response here to this evil and this pain Um, It's actually nothing new in the Bible. Um, Actually, the godly prophet Jeremiah, he asked this question. Jeremiah asked, why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Why was I even born to see this? And righteous Job, remember righteous Job. In the midst of all of his suffering, he asked God himself, why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me? And word as though I had not been born, just carried from the womb to the grave. You see, this preacher's lament of life itself in the face of all of this oppression and suffering, it's nothing new in the Bible. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, it's also nothing new in human experience. I'm in the midst of deep suffering, in the midst of discouraging despair, in the midst of overwhelming oppression, It's very easy for us to feel engulfed in that moment and wondering, why should we even go on? It's very easy. Often we can feel like this coalesce, asking the question, what's the point? Wouldn't it be better off if we hadn't been born in the first place instead of suffering all this? That is an honest human question. That is an honest human response. But but. This cry for compassion that this preacher sees, this suffering in the press, I want you to understand, it does have an answer. It does have an answer. And that answer is far better than, we should never have been born in the first place. Praise Jesus. It's better than that. There's an answer. It's a good answer. However, that better answer is not found in what Coalesce shows us next here. You see, although this preacher, he was tempted to shut his eyes, he doesn't. And here in verse 4 of our text, he tells us about another sight that he witnesses. But this time there are no tears. And so this time he sees hard work. He sees people toiling with skill and with labor. And on first glance, uh, we might think that this just might be the answer for those who who need help because they're struggling and they're oppressed. Here, instead of those who are suffering alone, the preacher sees hardworking people. And hardworking people have resources. And they have resources to help those who are in need. Resources to give aid and power to those who are being oppressed. Hard-working people have resources. But let's look more closely at these hard-working people in verse 4. Why are they working hard? Does coalesce see people moved with compassion for those who are out there and struggling? So they are laboring, they're laboring with their skill in order to help the needy, in order to help the oppressed. Is that what he sees? Sadly, that's not when he sees it all. Look at verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and works, work comes from a man's, does it say compassion towards his neighbor? Is that what your text says? What does it say? It comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. So brothers and sisters, take a moment and think with me about this. Instead of finding people who are moved with compassion... and and care for those who are suffering and, and their hurting neighbors, this preacher tells us that all toil and all skill and work are driven by envy of our neighbors. And beloved, please hear me on this. We desperately need to listen to what this preacher is saying and to think about this because this is such an easy place for us to live. This is such an easy place for us to live. I mean, take a moment and think with me about what drives you. What drives you? What makes you the hard worker that you are? What pushes you to work that overtime? To make those sacrifices to, to grow in your skill for doing your job. Is it driven by compassion? Or is it driven more by envy? Now, before you answer that question... Let me take a moment and talk to you about what envy actually is. Envy is actually rooted in jealousy over what another person has. It's rooted in jealousy over what another person has. We look at what another person possesses. We look at their position. We look at their opportunities. And then we grow discontent with our own and want what they have. We're doing this comparison shopping. Only the center of the comparison is them and us. So so envy is actually the fruit of a discontented heart. It is, is jealous discontentment that then lusts for what another person possesses. And this preacher tells us that's what he sees. That's what he sees driving all of our skill, all of our hard work. As one commentator put it, our envy becomes the ambition for our industry. Our envy becomes the ambition for our industry. He continues, rather than joy in our God-given labor being the quote-unquote caffeine that gets us up in the morning, covetous competitiveness instead oils our engines. In other words, we are driven by envy. And beloved, in our culture, this is such an easy trap to fall into. Amen? I don't know if everybody wants to say amen to that one this morning. This is such an easy trap to fall into. It's often called keeping up with the Joneses, right? You know what that means. How many of you have heard of that before? Keeping up with the Joneses, right? And what that means is we look around, we see what other people have, and we want it. We want to keep up with them. So we look around and we see our classmates, and they have those new those new AirPods, or they got that new iPhone 11, or we see our neighbor. And they got that brand new 2020 Ford F-150. They got the new King Ranch model, the one that starts just right out over at 50k. Starts at just a little over 50k. Or maybe it's that that close friends of yours who decided to go all in on that brand new kitchen. Soapstone countertops, beautiful cabinets, state-of-the-art appliances. And you see it. And it's so it's so much better than what you got. And it all looks so good. I mean, we want those new AirPods. We want that new truck. We want that bright, sparkling new kitchen. And so we tell ourselves, it will make our lives so much better. We just have that. We, we feel like we need to have it. And so that lust for what our neighbor has drives us to work hard. you want that stuff? Well, work hard for it. It drives us to work hard, to toil with skill, to put in that overtime, to make those sacrifices so we can get some of that stuff for ourselves. And people often call that the American dream, right? That's the American dream. That's the engine that drives capitalism. But here, this preacher in God's word, he tells us it's just chasing smoke. It's just a pipe dream It's just chasing smoke Actually he shows us what I'll call A, a hevel sandwich <laughs> A hevel sandwich And I call it that because of the way that this preacher Has crafted this text He's actually given us his message in this text a, As a sandwich uh, Life is hevel, life is vanity Sandwich And just look with me at the text here Here in verse 4 after talking about man's envy of his neighbor He tells us, look at the text This also is, what does he say? Vanity, and a striving after wind. And again, here he's using his favorite word, a word that the ESV translates as vanity, but it's that word hevel. It means smoke or mist or vapor. So he's telling us that this keeping up with the Joneses, is just like trying to grasp after smoke. It's just chasing after the wind. Then watch what he does here. He goes on to talk more about this lifestyle in verses 5 and 6 and then 7 and 8. He gives us a powerful picture of it. And we're going to circle back and kind of walk through those things. But notice the end of verse 8. Look at how he ends his little discussion about about our work driven by envy of our neighbors. He says again, look at the end of verse 8. This also is what? What does he say? Vanity. It's vanity and an unhappy business. So what he has done is he has sandwiched his discussion of this lifestyle, this lifestyle driven by envy... He has sandwiched it between two statements that tell us that this lifestyle will not give us the satisfaction that we think it will. He's repeated his statement that it's hell, It's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. Go out there today. Go run and chase after the wind. Spend 20 minutes. Spend three hours. Doesn't matter. Tell me how much wind you catch. It's an unhappy business, he said. So what he's done, he's he's sandwiched this discussion here between these two statements. And as I've said in the past, God doesn't repeat things in his word because he can't think of anything else to say, right? We have repetition here, and God repeats these things because he wants to get through to us. He repeats them for the sake of emphasis. And this, brothers and sisters, this is an emphasis that we need to hear, We need to hear it again because it's so easy for us in this culture to fall into this trap. It's so easy for us because so much of our culture, so much of our society feeds off this idea of of working hard so you can have the same things that your neighbor has. We need to hear it, brothers and sisters, because we, the church of Jesus Christ, are too often driven by envy instead of by compassion. We really need to hear what this preacher says to us. We really need to hear that this pursuit leads to emptiness. Nothing. But he doesn't just tell us that. He shows us that. And he shows us that by what I'll call the filler in this Hevel sandwich. Look look back at what he tells us in verses 5 and 6. Here, the first bit of, of filler for the sandwich, the first slice he throws in, is actually a really unflattering comparison Of this person driven by envy. Now again remember the context here. Uh, This preacher is talking about these people who are working hard. Who are toiling and working with with their skill driven by envy. But then here in verse 5. He he gives us a picture who's at the other end of that spectrum. A picture of a person at the other end of that spectrum of hard work. He he points to the the lazy fool. He says look at the text. Look at verse 5. The fool folds his hands. And eats his own flesh. What a picture, huh? The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And, and with that little statement, that little statement is very similar to what we find. If you remember when we did our study in the book of Proverbs, is very similar to what we find over there in the book of Proverbs. There in Proverbs 6, you might remember this. <laughs> I think our brother Jake walked us through this. But there in Proverbs 6, verses 9 to 11, we read this. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come on you like a robber. And want like an armed man. And really, brothers and sisters, that's the, that's the same picture that we're being shown here in verse 5. It, it's a picture of a lazy fool folding his hands to rest, just taking it easy. And that rest leads to his own ruin. That would, that's what it means by he, he eats his own flesh. He's lazy and he's just using up whatever resources he's got and he's going to end up with nothing. But looking at the text here, notice then the way this text turns. Notice the shocking way that this text turned. In verse 6 we read, Better is a handful of quietness or a handful of rest than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Now what I want you to understand is there's a contrast actually being created here. Don't miss it. And maybe this will help you feel the contrast here. Here's the way this text is rendered by the New Living Translation. Listen. It reads, Fools fold their idle hands, leading, to the, leading them to ruin. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. You hear that contrast a little more clearly in that translation? Do you hear the contrast? This, this preacher, he's telling us, those lazy fools, they're headed for their own destruction, and yet, better one handful of rest, better one handful of nothing than two handfuls of toil and chasing after smoke. You see, this preacher is telling us, those lazy fools are still better off than the one who is working hard, but driven by his envy. And then it shows us why he says that. Verses 7 and 8 here, look at it. He adds a little more filler to this Hevel sandwich. He throws in another slice. And he adds a a tragic picture alongside that unflattering comparison. Look at the text. Look at verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there was no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks... For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Now, that, little, that last question, that's a really important question. That last little statement. For whom, right? For whom am I toiling, and depriving myself of pleasure? So, here's a the picture. There's no end of this person's toil, right? They are working hard. They are laboring away. They are exercising all of their skill. They are working long hours. They are burning the midnight oil. But then the question. For What? For whom? For whom are they doing all this? And our initial response when reading this text might be to say, well, well, for no one, right? For no one. I mean, doesn't the text text itself say, this person has no other, either son or brother. So they're working hard for no one, right? I mean, isn't that the point of this text? It's tragic because they're working so hard for no one. Isn't that the point here? Maybe we see that and we say, well, that's, that's tragic, Ryan, but that's, that's not me. That's not us. I mean, I have a spouse or I have family or I have grandkids. Or I have parents. I work hard for them. That's not a picture of me. That's not a picture of us. Well, maybe it actually is. Maybe it actually is. So let me say why I say that. Follow me on this. Again, look at the text. This person in verse 8 has, as the ESV puts it, no other. Yeah, there's no end to his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom. Am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? You see, if we slow down and read this text, there is actually someone that this person is laboring and striving and working hard to satisfy. And that person is themselves. This person, the text tells us, is driven by their own appetites. They are driven by their own lusts. They are driven by their own envy. They have no other. Their focus is just on themselves. But they will never satisfy those appetites. Again, the text says, his eyes are never satisfied with riches. They will never satisfy those appetites. And beloved, that's the real tragedy of envy that's why it's, it's all hevel that's why it's all chase and smoke that's why it's all a big fat sandwich of emptiness that's why the fool is, even the fool is better off because at least they have some rest but the person who is driven by their envy the person who is laboring and toiling and putting on those long hours driven by a discontented heart, lusting for the life and possessions of their neighbor, that person is never going to find any rest. You will never know any peace chasing that lifestyle. Instead, you'll always find someone with a newer truck, a better kitchen, a new iPhone. You see, here's the thing. You can never really keep up with the Joneses. There's always Joneses that got more stuff. You can never really keep up with the Joneses. It's like running a race that has no finish line, okay? It's like running a race that has no finish line. And that's the real tragedy of envy. And it's also, beloved, it's the great danger of envy. You see, in this world that has such a need for people of compassion, people like our Lord Jesus, envy becomes the great threat to that compassion. And envy makes us competitive with our neighbor instead of compassionate towards our neighbor. It pushes us. Envy pushes us inward. It focuses us on satisfying self. And it tries to to satisfy a, a craving that will never be satiated. It puts us on this hamster wheel of self and just wears us. And so then, brothers and sisters, are running on that hamster wheel all the time, we end up with nothing left. We end up with nothing left. We're exhausted. We, we have nothing left for the broken. We have nothing left for the hurting. We have nothing left for the lonely, nothing left for the oppressed. We've got no time in our busy schedule, you see. We're, we're fatigued by life. And, and all of our resources, all the things we can use to help, to help, they're all tied up in this race. This race driven by envy. This race that really has no end. We can actually become the people of Jesus living for a mission far different than that of Jesus. We become the people of Jesus living for a mission far different than that of Jesus. And sadly, beloved, this is the story of much of the church in the West. I mean, the Lord tarries another thousand years and look back on the history of the church. I think this will be the sad story of the church in the West. We have resources coming out our ears, brothers and sisters. We are so wealthy. We have so many knowledgeable, gifted people. We have resources coming out our ears. And there are needs. There are needs everywhere. There are hurting and broken people all around us. But we're all too busy chasing the American dream to actually stop and help somebody. Our envy actually has us living cross purposes with our Savior. Our envy actually has us living cross purposes with our Savior. So, what is the answer? What is the answer? Should we all quit our jobs, sell our houses, go live among the poor? Is it wrong to have a nice home, to work some overtime, to get a new iPhone? What is the answer? Again, the need is for people of compassion. There are those with tears and no one to comfort them. And the threat, the great danger and distraction is our our envy. We work hard simply out of a, a jealous discontentment. So then what's the answer? What's the answer? Well, that's what I love about the way this text works. I love the way this text works. You see, after this preacher exposes this need and he shows us the struggles of our own heart, he walks us through all of this, this ugliness, these people with tears and no one to comfort them, and these people driven by envy, and it really exposes us. He walks us through all of this ugliness. He then gives us this beautiful answer. And the answer is, you ready for it? The answer is us. Beloved, the answer is us. The answer is us. It's us. It's us. It's us focused on others. Let me explain what I mean here. Verse 3, verses 1 to 3. Here he shows us. Those who are all alone, and they, they are hurting, and they are oppressed, and they are all by themselves, and they are lonely. And then in verses 4 through 8, he shows us the, the self-absorbed. There's the lonely in verses 1 to 3, and then there's the self-absorbed. And that's, that's us focused on self, and it's me. It's focused on me, and what I don't have, and, and what I desire to have to satisfy my own appetites. So there's, there's the lonely, there's the self-absorbed. But then here in verses 9 to 12, look at this. This preacher shifts from the problem of me to the answer of, of we, He shows us the beauty of community. The beauty of community. And beloved, this is the answer. This is the answer. The answer is us. The answer is community. The answer is us together. Look at this text. Starting in verse 9, what do we see? Two are better than what? Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone. When he falls in, he has no other to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, what happens? They keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. You see, in this world full of pain and oppression and struggle, the answer is us. The answer is us. We, we need to move away from this focus on me and instead focus on we. Together, we need to embrace true community. We need to embrace true community. Now, now we're going to talk about this a bunch more next time we're together in Ecclesiastes. But, but let me just be- remind you, beloved, that we, the church, the people of Jesus, are the community that this world needs. We, the church, are the community that this world needs. Remember, community, brothers and sisters, is what we were created for. We were created for community. Like our triune God who exists in perfect, holy community, we too were made for that. We we were made in God's image. That's why it was not good for the man to be alone. He needed someone to love, someone to, to care for, someone to pick up and encourage, someone to sacrifice for, and someone to do those things for him. So so the man and the woman were created for one another. We need, amen, we need one another, right? We need community. We were created for it. But then in the fall, we lost community. We lost it. Instead of continuing to be loving and gracious people living in harmony with one another, we became self-focused, blame-shifting people. We're only looking out for us. I mean, isn't that what we see with Adam and Eve there in the fall? Blame shifting, just looking out for themselves. Isn't that what we see with with Cain and Abel? And on and on and on and on it goes. But through Christ, praise Jesus, through Christ, through his great love and his compassion for the hurting, for the broken, for the oppressed, for you and for me, he removes those obstacles to true community. Obstacles like what? Well, he removes our sin and our shame. So we can stop trying to hide that and just be free to to live in relationship with one another. He he loves us so fully. He fills us up. So then we are free to turn and love one another. We don't have to be afraid of not being loved because we are loved more than we can fathom. So then from that fullness, we turn and love one another. And he satisfies. And if you don't feel this, I'm praying for you, the Spirit would bless you with this. He satisfies our deepest longings with himself. Again, he fills us up so then that we can start to give to one another generously out of the abundance that we have received in Christ. you see, Christ creates a new community, a restored community in the church. And no, we are not a perfect community. Amen? The church is not a perfect community. We still, at times, we all fall back into those self-absorbed, envy-driven, selfish ways. But here's the thing, and please don't miss this. Those moments of failure do not change the answer itself. You see, you have the answer. You have the answer and the answer is we we the people of christ filled with the compassion of christ reaching a world that desperately needs the community of christ you have the answer you you have what this preacher here in ecclesiastes 4 what he's pointing to you you can be part of the two that pick one another up you can be part of that community that keeps one another warm, encouraging each other's hearts. You can be part of that three cold, threefold cord that is not easily broken. Beloved, you, you are the answer. But please hear me on this. It all starts with showing envy the door. It all starts with showing envy the door. It starts with showing envy the door and embracing the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Let me ask you this question. And again, I say this. I'm asking this question not for you to think about it for your neighbor, your spouse, us in a very general sense. I'm asking this of you specifically. Will you start to take your eyes off of what your neighbor has and start trying to see what they actually need? Will you start taking your eyes off of what your neighbor has? show envy the door and start trying to see what they actually need when well, you look around you and just see who are those who are hurting who are those who are struggling who are those who are oppressed maybe it's somebody who's in a pain filled marriage and they need somebody to put their arm around them and be there to pick them up when they're struggling Maybe it's somebody who's struggling economically. And and they're trying, but man, it seems like two steps forward, three steps back. You got resources? Maybe it's a fellow church member who just needs a friend. They're just lonely. And they need someone. I love you. I'll pray with you. How are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord? Or maybe you look around and you see like so many around us, people who are dead in their sins and trespasses, suffering under the oppression of the enemy. Maybe they have a nice big house. They don't look like they're suffering, but they are. They, they are trying to shove all of that hevel and fill that emptiness inside of them. And they're just feeling more and more. In this world, our enemy, they're they're lying to them. Oh, just go this way. This is where you'll find satisfaction. This is where you'll find peace. This is where you'll find love. This is where you'll find joy. They're wearing themselves out. And you're standing there and you know the answer. You know how to liberate them from the oppression. You know the gospel. So, when you look at what they don't have, what they need, instead of envying what they possess. Beloved, this world needs to see a community that sees them. A community that sees them. So, I'll put you this way let's be that community. Let's be that community. Let's be a community of people who live like our Lord Jesus, moved with the compassion of Jesus, taking his gospel rescue to any and all who are the oppressed. Because, beloved, that's what he did for you and for me. Amen? That's what he did for you and for me. So it seems right for us now, as we start to wrap up our service to celebrate as a community what he did for us. After I pray, our brother Luke and David and Lindsay are going to come back up here and lead us in some closing songs. But during this time, we have a communion table set up, up here and, and one in the back. And as you feel led, come and partake of the bread and the cup. Um, partake of it. And I want to encourage you reminding yourself of how Jesus came and met your need, how he lived for you and he died for you in order to truly save you. Praise Jesus. His life wasn't one of envy. Amen. This was one of compassion. So as you feel led during these next three songs, come and partake at the table. But I also want to say that if you're struggling today, um, if you're feeling discouraged today, um, or if you're like me, feeling a little convicted by the things in the text this morning, um, and you'd like someone to pray with you. Um, there'll be brothers and sisters around the table to pray with you. Or you say, well, there's people in my row as well. If you want to pray with people in your row or with your family. And just kind of confess those struggles to one another and pray for it. Because that's the kind of community we're supposed to be. Amen? Not a bunch of isolated individuals. But a community showing compassion to one another. So we're going to ask the musicians to come. And then let's enter into this time. Rejoicing in our salvation, partaking of the bread and the cup. And again, as you feel led, praying with one another, for one another. Let's, let's practice being this community of grace. Amen? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear only Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that it never lets us get to the place of just being comfortable. Um, because our heart leads us to these places that are, are damaging and destructive for us and deceives us by making us comfortable in those things. And it's so easy for us to get com- comfortable living as people of envy. Our whole life, our job, the way we spend our, our money, the way we organize our time, all driven by wanting what other people have. And, and again, Father, we are immersed in it. I mean, it's there in all of our marketing, it's there in our culture. Just always putting these things in our face. Telling us if you just have this you'll be happy. But I thank you for your word. And it comes along and it says. That's emptiness. That's, that's chasing smoke. And it grabs us by the shirt, shirt collar. Like, like this preacher does. And he, he says look at the people who have need. There are people who are oppressed. Who have no one. They're in their tears. They got no one. And it calls us back to meeting those needs by being people who embrace community. People who live a lifestyle of being there for one another. And I thank you that Lord Jesus, you are the model of that. That although you had glory, you gave it all up for us. To live, to live a life of poverty Perfect obedience. Struggle. People always against you. People always misunderstanding what you're trying to do. People against you in anger and jealousy. But yet you you kept coming. You kept loving. And you loved all the way to that tree that cross where you showed us the greatest act of compassion and love towards us. You gave up everything for us and you have given us everything. So thank you for doing that and then calling us to that same lifestyle, finding joy in laying down our life for those around us, for being true brothers and sisters, for being people who look around and see the need. and care more about what our neighbors need than what they have. Help us to grow in that. Help us to model you. And thank you for inviting us to this time around the table. This time when we can have our hearts encouraged by the truth that you have done everything necessary to save us. You live for us, you died for us, you have done it all. We praise you bless this time. These things we pray in your name. Amen.